Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken. This is a really, wow, this is a fascinating one to record. Um, This is a panel about medical marijuana and everything that you don't know about it, we're going to be delving into so much. And I learned so much that I didn't know, and I have been using medical marijuana for quite a few years now, and I thought I was pretty well educated, and nope, still learning brand new exciting things. So we talk about the uses of things like THC, CBD, and all of the other parts of the plant that we're still learning about. Uh, We go over legal issues like what Schedule 1 means and what it means to future research. Um, Let's see. I was talking today with um, Jessica, Jessica Peters, who until the Santa Rosa fires have been running a very wonderful business, Moxie CBD Rich Tinctures, um, which she had started because her endometriosis had gotten to almost no symptoms after being completely debilitating thanks to her use of CBD. Um, I also talked to an old client and a dear friend, Emily, who works for the lab CW Analytical in Berkeley, and she is the VP of Business Development. I had so many questions for them, and they went over so much from the history of medical marijuana, the history of marijuana, and the history of the legalities. Um, We went through how this really could be almost a miracle cure. Um, And I hate using the word miracle because it's way overused, but the uses of this plant haven't even begun to be unfolded. And I think most people at least have antidotal evidence of what they've seen in their own lives and the lives around them. The peer-reviewed research, which you'll hear that term a lot, and it's an important one. I actually linked the real definition in the show notes. Um, The idea that it would be on a Schedule 1, which would mean in the United States, Schedule 1 means that there is no medical benefit. So for a plant that has shown so uh, so much health and with zero deaths to be seen as a Schedule 1, that's amazing. And we really do delve into why that's important, and the huge financial risks that medical marijuana businesses take on because they're Schedule 1 and what they're not allowed to have. I am just going to let you guys jump right on into this. It's one of my favorite panels. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, And please go to the blog because I spent a long, long, long time linking everything I could think that you guys might want. So enjoy, and hopefully I will hear from you guys next week. I'm Emily Richardson, and I'm the Vice President of Business Development with CW Analytical Laboratories, and we are a cannabis quality assurance um, testing laboratory. Uh, So we test for potency and for things like pesticides, bacteria, mold, um, and uh, we've been doing this work since 2009, and we're based in Oakland, California. Yeah, so not like your grandmother's marijuana anymore. This no. is like not Woodstock, don't take the brown acid. Right, so right. Isn't part of what you're doing is also like testing for if the amount is what is said on the packaging? Yeah, that's that's a huge, especially for things like edibles, um, huh. <laughs> uh, where a difference of, you know, if the package says it's five milligrams and it's actually 20, um, the, that can make a huge difference in someone's experience. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I think anyone who has used edibles with some sort of frequency.
UNC has had an experience that they <laughs> wish they hadn't. So that's definitely a hugely important um, aspect of what we do. Uh, we work with a lot of edible manufacturers uh, from, you know, trim to trim to final product. So whether they're making a, a concentrate and infusing the recipe that way, or, um, you know, they're doing it more the old fashioned way by making a butter out of plant material, whatever it is, they need to test that before they infuse their recipe to make sure that things are consistent and that they're hitting the number that they want on their packaging. And so. speaking of tinctures, <laughs> yeah. Nice segue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just do do an intro. But um, my name is Jessica Peters. I'm formerly the president of Moxie Meds, a CBD rich tincture company, and also formerly the CBD specialist from Harborside Health Center. Um, I've been in the cannabis industry for uh, what nine years now. Wow, time is marching on. Yeah. Um, and I've worked uh, most of that time with what I would classify as dire needs patients, um, folks for whom cannabis can really be the difference between um, a, a, an acceptable quality of life and not. Um, and I mean, for me, uh, I come to this as a patient first uh, that, it, you know, I absolutely require medical cannabis to survive. Um to stay out of the hospital. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's all over the. It's in, <laughs> it's in Cosmo. So let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my childhood dreams come true. Yeah, to be in Cosmo. Wow. Yeah. No, I have uh, endometriosis, um, and it's a pre- it's a pretty severe case, or it was, I should say, a pretty severe case. It's, it took 13 years to get a diagnosis, which is pretty average for women. Um, I love that we all say this with the nod of, yes, mm. it does seem average to mm. suffer for 13 years. Totally reasonable. You you're crazy and yeah. it's just hormones. Yeah, that yep. sounds right. Yeah. Sorry, totally reasonable. Bring that up. No, yeah. it's, it's true. And that's a really big part. I think of uh, there's an interesting overlap in the cannabis world with diseases that are either ignored, even mm-hmm. if they're heavily statistically present, or diseases that don't have a large statistical presence, and therefore they don't get attention by Western mm-hmm. medical providers, they don't get attention by pharmaceutical manufacturers, etc. So it's not totally uncommon, I would say, for people to come to cannabis through diseases that maybe people aren't as familiar with or that are like endometriosis common but very hard to attend to you Mm -hmm. know um or underdiagnosed or misunderstood i mean like I'm guessing, at least with the analytics we have, that most of our listenership, they don't have ovaries. <laughs> they don't know about like what this actually feels like. And there's almost an expectation with anything female-related that discomfort is just supposed to be a part of it. And mm-hmm. that the misunderstanding of discomfort to extreme levels of pain um, yeah. is very different. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big feature of endometriosis is that for most women, it takes a decade to get diagnosis. And much of that time is spent with Western medical providers conveying that it's just your period. Yeah, this yeah, is normal. It's not supposed to feel good. Um, yeah. But it's not normal to have to be hospitalized during no, your period. Yeah. So that's, you know. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's part of why I'm a patient. That's a really big component of it. And it's also part of why I seek to understand this plant better because I want to understand why this can help that much. It seems, you know, at least for me, it's a, it's a night and day difference. It's a radical difference from what I was facing before to now I'm essentially asymptomatic. I assumedly have endometrial cells, 
they you wouldn't said have that, gone I away. You had like the hysterectomy done. No, I was offered a, a hysterectomy at 28 years old. No way. Which was crazy. Um, I know people who've had two kids and they're in their 30s and are fighting like tigresses yeah. to get their hysterectomy. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And it, it's kind of an irony that I had I had fought to have a tubal ligation prior to that for unrelated reasons. And that was a no-go across the board, no matter where I wow. was in the United States, no matter what provider I asked. But then the moment that they God hit the forbid wall, you make your own decisions yeah, about right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> No, 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 exactly. young lady, you don't know what you yeah. want. We'll keep this intact yeah. just for any chance of a future human. Right. <laughs> exactly. Hell? And oh, that, yeah. you know, a tubal ligation is certainly... Uh, while, you know, a more advanced procedure, it's certainly m- less problematic than going and getting a partial yeah. or full hysterectomy. But yeah. the moment they really hit the wall on figuring out what my endometriosis was, the first thing that was offered was a hysterectomy before I'd even hit 30. So it's it's wow. just very telling yeah. about how this is all handled. Um, and yeah, so I went from, you know, being offered a hysterectomy and, going, and being in the hospital a lot. I was on 15 different pharmaceuticals over the space of a decade to now I, I'm not on any pharmaceuticals. I haven't had symptomatic expression of my endometriosis in five years wow. at all. Um, today is the first day of my cycle. <laughs> and I can tell you that literally for the bulk of my life from teenage on, that I, it would have been undoable to be engaged in school or work or, you know, just be functioning in this way. And so that's kind of a... A good way to highlight the the asymptomatic nature of it is that now is I'm, that you are here. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. now <laughs> functioning. Yeah, it's a big wow. deal. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And so for anyone who's not figured out, this is your co-host Monica Michelle, and I have Eller Stainless. And um, wow, I'm actually missing all my diagnoses in my Pots. brain. Pots. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> fibromyalgia and a host of other things they're trying to diagnose and lots of surgeries on the horizon yay me Mm -hmm. um and i was using um all the medical marijuana but um i don't know if the taxes changed or if my um being on disability and the money situation changed my feelings about it but i don't use it anymore in even though it was incredibly helpful and did decrease my need for opioids not that i didn't take them i absolutely did and they were an important part of my pain management but they um it decreased the amount I needed significantly, but the cost of the, um, because I need to use tinctures because if I smoke it, <laughs> I cough and Eller stainless, I just, uh, dislocate ribs when I do that. So, um, it was tinctures only, which are very pricey to make. I totally understand that. <laughs> that takes a lot of plant to get that, but it was, um, it was getting close to $200 a week. And that is just not possible when you're on disability. So we are going to totally discuss the mm-hmm. economic side of it all. And you definitely understand the business side of it. And Emily, you've seen all of it. Um, but I wanted to go quickly before we like yeah. delve into all of the, the business stuff. You worked at Harborside, which is one of the big um, medical dispensaries in our area. And you said you worked with a lot of people who were going through severe medical issues. What did you see the difference in their quality of life with CBD? I mean, massive. Uh, A huge portion of that time I was dealing with pediatric seizure patients. So that's probably one of the areas where you most distinctly see the benefits and the changes. Yeah, you see kids go from not even being able to engage in a conversation or hold your eyes or necessarily even speak all the way through to often in a relatively short span of time, being able to look at you, to hold your gaze, to communicate, to hug their parents, to 
tie their shoes on their own, you name it. So, you know, while I've seen a radical amount of changes with adults and with patients from all backgrounds, I would say pediatric seizure patients are the ones where it's incredibly distinctive. It's mm-hmm. a night and day difference. If, if they get efficacy, they often get a tremendous amount of efficacy. And I would say that, you know, the, the likelihood of getting benefits is above 80%. Like it's, you know, I have seen kids who, who have not had any success with different types of CBD medications, but that's so uncommon um, that I would say, you know, mostly you're talking about really significant changes in quality of life and the ability to develop, which is, I mean, it's so significant if you're, if you're being stunted at that early of an age, both by the disease you're facing and the pharmaceuticals that are given for Mm -hmm. it, you're not even getting a chance to develop. And that's probably where I've seen the biggest changes. That became really famous with Charlotte's Web. And even before that, too. Like a medical combo. That was the one that I remember seeing because it was in like everything. That's yeah. With with Charlotte Figgy is is when uh, Sanjay Gupta decided Mm -hmm. to address this topic. And that's really what kind of changed the face of the topic overall. But there, the the patient in the Bay Area who was a couple of years, three even years before that, um, this young child, Jaden, um, his father, Jason David, uh, was, to my knowledge, one of the first people to attempt to use CBD for pediatric seizure disorders. Wow. And he's the reason that I decided to focus on that that type of need. And we're going to put all of this in show notes too. We're going to link all of this because the seizure disorders, like I was hearing, um, they called them uh, medical refugees, the parents who are moving from states where they help support networks to legal states. As well as other countries, mind you. I've had had pediatric seizure patients from Turkey. Um, So people, people all over the world are paying attention depending on where they're at. They may have better or no access than we do here in California. Mm -hmm. It completely changes based Mm -hmm. on the nation, of course. Um, But yeah, certainly all across California and Colorado, there are families who've had to move uh, and uproot their families and often can't go back to where they're from to visit it because the child has a Schedule 1 substance in their veins and Mm -hmm. in their system. So if they were to you know, go back to whatever state to visit grandmother and they needed to go into the hospital, CPS might in fact pull them from their families. And this is something that does happen with some frequency, unfortunately. And so the cruelty of it is just so intense. It's pretty like, part crazy. of the reason I didn't try for so long was because I was reading about mothers who were divorced whose kids would get taken away for mm-hmm. medical marijuana use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were there um, any other the seizure disorders, the endometriosis, have you seen anything other than like what we generally associate marijuana with is like cancer cares? Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I've had adult and pediatric, uh, cancer patients, um, and a, a really, I would say kind of shocking levels of success across the board. Um, uh, but everything, I mean, anything you could think of mental health issues, depression, PTSD, anxiety, um, autoimmune diseases. I mean, I feel like what is easier to state is the few categories of, of scenarios where I haven't seen mm. success as opposed to the litany of ailments mm-hmm. and symptoms that are frequently bettered by cannabis. So, And that's part of what makes it, I think, difficult for people that have no access or aren't engaged with it is that that seems just too miraculous. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. I get that. Um, 
And that's, you know, that's, that's where we need to deepen our understanding of the plan is that it's in part miraculous because we're talking about thousands of medications that come from one plan. And so the perspective of how could it work for all these various things, how could it work for little children with seizures versus an adult who has anxiety versus an adult who has cancer versus me with endometriosis is because we're also utilizing different components of the plan Mm -hmm. to address each of those therapeutic needs. And that changes a lot about how the medications work. So I'll have both of you address the um, people who are listening to this who are still in the just say no to drugs and grew up with this is the gateway drug, you do this, and like next thing you know you're on the street shooting heroin. Um, what aspects of this are things that will change your mood? What won't change how you're feeling? I mean, I... No judgment on anyone. I'm mm-hmm. all for recreational. Please, for the, the have a great time. I just don't like the feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was able to use um, the best thing I've ever found was the cream. The um, that's been what keeps my uh, not seizures. Um, <laughs> I'm having a Spasm. fun day today. <laughs> I was you give my whole medical system. <laughs> God, we've known each other long enough. Yeah, I know. <laughs> The spasming means when I dislocate, uh, the worst part of it, it's not the worst part, but the part that makes it hard to get it back in is that the muscles around mm-hmm. spasm and lock the bone out of its joint. <laughs> so the um, the cream, which doesn't means I could do anything, like I, it does not alter me, um, will help me slide the joint back in eventually. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who don't know like the different levels because the people who have never used this think of smoking pot either back in the 60s or mm-hmm. you know in your parents' basement. And I'd love for you guys just to address, like, medicine and even recreational fun, just the different sides of this. Not that there's any judgment on any of it, but just that there's different ways of using this medication to either feel something or not. Mm-hmm. I'll speak to that a little bit. Um, so I've uh, been in the industry now for, God, close to eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, so, this does not get easier. I know, it's, it's, you know, it's wild to think about, but, um, and I think about all the time, uh, I look back on what used to come through the lab and what comes through the lab now. And, um, yeah, like I remember in 2011, 2012, we were excited if we saw a flower come in with four or five percent CBD. And that was considered, whoa, that's a really high CBD product. And, you know, there was this uh, alert project CBD. If it was a new strain, there were a group that was trying to, you know, collect research and and, and sort of strain listings on on what things um, had. At the, I don't know if it still is, but at the time, high CBD was considered anything above 5% CBD. Oh, real quick, explain to anyone who doesn't know the difference between CBD and THC, because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, these are words together. Right, yes, that's a a good point. Um, So uh, THC or, uh, you know, the proper chemical terminology for it would be, uh, as we know, is delta 9 tetrahydrohydrocannabinol. (laughs) 
disorders I have. Right. <laughs> and um, and that is the compound that gives you the the quote unquote high, the psychoactive effect. It also it's sort of given a bad name in that sense because you know again, like you said, you don't like that psychoactive effect, and that's fine. You know that it's um, it it is an effect. It is a mind altering um, you know chemical, but it also has a lot of beneficial you know healing or oh, pain relieving. For the people who are going to go absolutely not, they just want to get high. Explain some of the just the things that could be helped by THC. I think well, Jessica would probably yeah. be better. At yeah, that. I mean THC uh, is an anti-emetic. It, it prevents nausea. Um, it has analgesic effects. It has pain relieving effects. Um, it has immune boosting effects. It really anti-tumor. Is, right? Yeah, uh, it, it, there's a, there's a huge relationship between not only CBD but also THC and cancer. Mm-hmm. So this idea of kind of lumping THC because of its psychoactivity mm-hmm. into a concept of that's the one for fun, mm-hmm. I think is is pretty unfortunate. And the reality right. is, if you don't want to feel psychoactive effects, it can still be present. Mm-hmm. It just has to be present in a low enough amount that it's getting done for you what we'd like it. To to do without making you feel high. Um, It's an appetite stimulant, which, you know, many of us who are kind of, uh, yeah, older into the cannabis world, what we think of is, you know, or at least for me from my childhood, I think of cancer patients and uh, HIV uh, and AIDS patients and how the, the value of stimulating appetite is actually incredibly significant in terms of their quality of life and and their ability to thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It can be sedative. So if someone is needing to get sleep, there can Mm -hmm. be useful properties there. It can also be energizing. Um, So for example, I know a lot of elderly patients that like stimulating levels of THC in order to be able to be active and, Mm -hmm. and feel engaged that that stimulating quality can also be a part of fighting depression for some people, um, for others, maybe not so much. So it's kind of dependent on the patient, what parts of this are useful to you or not, what properties of THC are really going to kind of impact your life for the better. Um, but it is absolutely of medical value. And I think that's, it's really important. And yeah, like you said, it's unfortunate that that it's sort of, um, and and again, I was, I brought up the fact that, you know, we would see a a high CBD flower and get excited. And yes, you know, I think all too often I hear CBD is, oh, that's the medical one Mm -hmm. and THC, that's the stuff that gets you high. And that, you know, that black and white way of looking at it is just not, you know, it's just not accurate. So, um, you know, while we've seen uh, farmers breeding out higher levels of CBD, um, it, you know, it, that is not to say that the, um, you know, the THC that's present um, in other strains or in those CBD strains is not beneficial because a lot of times, um, it, in fact, CBD, the synergistic effects of these different cannabinoids, and, and we're just talking about two, there are dozens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, I am newly educated here. Yeah, that's that's part of what's so significant, though, is that we've by by having this very myopic Mm -hmm. debate surrounding the topic, we've now gotten into a mental place where, as Emily was saying, we've we've classified CBD as medical, 
THC is not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we've also then ignored every other part of the plant that has therapeutic value, which seems to me to be not moving in the direction we'd like to move in, you know, in terms of greater understanding of the plant. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and again, understanding this and, um, and using it in clinical applications, uh, that, you know, sort of quantification of these compounds is sort of that first step in allowing us to have uh, clinical trials and, and get real meaningful empirical data on the efficacy of these different cannabinoids and, and their, um, you know, and how they work together. Um, I think a good example uh, and of how far we've come is when we first started doing this work in the lab, um, in order to um, quantify the levels of THC or CBD in an unknown, like a a flower or oil or whatever came through the lab, you have to have a, a reference standard of a known amount. So we purchased these from companies that produce pharmaceutical grade standards. And, and a standard is a liquid is a, is a liquid concentration and an and aliquot of a compound that is produced in their facility to, you know, ISO specifications and uh, standards and whatnot that we then use to compare unknowns to. So when we first started doing this, the only cannabinoid standards that were available were THC, CBD, and CBN. And now um, most labs, you know, we have access to 10 to 12 different cannabinoids that we can quantify now. <laughs> so uh, I'm confused. Yeah. So uh, I mean, and that's exciting. I think, you know, in just the space of a, you know, half a decade, uh, you know, we've, we've come that far. So I can only imagine, you know, what our lab will be able to quantify in the next 10 years or, or five or 10 years. If we take it off schedule one. Right. So if you want to explain that, because I, I'm not qualified to explain what schedule one is and what that means for testing and medical, if, if either one of you want to pick that one up. Yeah. With Jeff Sessions, our lovely little Mm keyboard troll, talking about the dangers of marijuana when I think it would really help him. Yeah, well, so Schedule 1 status um, from the federal government basically means that they perceive cannabis to have what no medical value whatsoever, Um, which in turn, I mean, not only is that just bizarrely inaccurate by Mm -hmm. any kind of standards of global scientific advancement, Mm -hmm. that also means that we can't advance the science further. Because the moment you put a substance into that Schedule 1 category and state that it has no medical value, it also means that you've stymied research in that topic completely. Mm -hmm. Um, It means that, you know, um, large universities can't get funding uh, to do that type of research, which it, it just kind of becomes a cyclical process, I would say, is that, you know, we're, the more that uh, we would want to have that research and fight this status, we're still stuck not being able to do that research to fight this status. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really quite an entrenched position. Um, and yet, at, for, for me at least, at the same time, what's craziest about that is that other nations have advanced this research really drastically over mm-hmm. the last decade, incredibly so. And science is not nation-based. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there are no yeah. barriers in science. <laughs> peer-reviewed research is still peer-reviewed research, yeah. and that data should still be applicable to our decisions in terms of policy making mm-hmm. and the idea that we're ignoring all these other nations and all the research that's coming out of them, uh, it's... 
I, it's not shocking, actually, yeah. <laughs> because that's Very what we have going on. Yeah. Um, but it's so incredibly problematic. It's dangerous for patients. It's 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 just totally morally unacceptable. Um, it's yeah. amazing yeah. what we're willing to accept in side effects of prescribed drugs. Right. And oh, yeah. like, but you might get hungry and feel a little loopy if you yeah. take this. Like, yeah. It's like, wow, this is, um, this is quite a different set of standards on what we put for what we'll accept for mer- medical marijuana right. um, as a side effect versus if you take more of this and you eat this and you take this other pill, you're going to die. Like, yeah, this absolutely. Is a, this well, is the, a very... the death factor underscores it all, right? Is that people don't die yeah. from cannabis and they do die from a large number of pharmaceuticals that we mm-hmm. engage in, whether they're useful or not, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. whatever our perception about them is. And we, for some reason, feel it's, you know, for example, with pediatric seizure patients, most of the medications they're given, Mm -hmm. the pharmaceuticals they're given to attend to their diseases are, in fact, a large part of their likelihood of passing. Mm -hmm. Um, And their physicians will even state that. So that's apparently an acceptable level of danger, whereas CBD, what, is not? I mean, it's, it's, it's super... Right. Well, it's unacceptable. Like child Protective Service, and it's like you're okay with CPS if you give your child a drug that the doctors say it has a decent likelihood of killing them. Yeah. But if you take them to a legal state and you give them this medication that's helped a lot of kids, I wouldn't even try mm-hmm. to venture on the number. Oh, but thousands. But that could get yeah. your child taken away. Yeah. yeah. And like even for um, children who have things like ADD or um, mm-hmm. other, autism, like, autism yeah. or lesser disorders, there's a lot of parents I know who would love to get their children off of drugs that they feel are not only dangerous physically, and I'm not saying yes or no to giving them. I'm not that parent. I do whatever works for you. But um, it is frightening when you look at the list of things your child might experience physically and emotionally on these mm-hmm. drugs. And then you're like, but I can't chance giving them the marijuana and see if it works because I could end up with a legal issue. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's yeah. really frightening. It's that's surreal. what really scares me. Like if even just like taking everything off the table and going schedule one, there's no medical benefit. There's just this overwhelming evidence of this being so much more beneficial than a lot of the drugs that are on the market. And right. I mean, it's, it's very hard for the poor pharmaceutical companies when you can grow your own medicine. Yeah. yeah. And poor babies. I know that getting the billion dollar revenues is going to hurt, but, um, well, you see the, the irony there. I mean, you, you see these, um, pharmaceutical companies lobbying really hard against it, but at the same time investing in it Mm -hmm. and developing drugs uh, with, you know, synthetics, synthetic, (laughs) you know, CBD or synthetic THC that really, um, that, you know, while they do work for some people, I think, um, you know, anecdotally I've heard, and I don't know if there exists some, any peer reviewed research on this, but that they're just not as effective as things that come from the actual cannabis plant yeah. that may have, that there's other cannabinoids present. And again, these dozens of other cannabinoids that we can't really quantify right now, we can't measure, but that are there and that are adding to the, you know, therapeutic benefit of the medicine as a whole. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's on record, there's, you know, you know, lobbying dollars that are spent by these companies to prevent, to prevent access mm-hmm 
yet at this, um, you know, in the, if you look the other way, they're, you know, dumping millions of dollars into getting patents. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big battle brewing, um, you know, from what I understand of people in the CBD world, of that there could be some very dire consequences of some patent um, uh, things that are coming up with CBD, these companies that are trying to patent this and that it would essentially make them the only producer, the only legal producer of it. Um, so that's, you know, that's something looming in the future and that's, you know, that's scary as hell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even just the legalization of, uh, recreational and medical marijuana here had some pretty intense consequences and effects that some people are saying, yes, this is what's going to happen. We need to like, not that we don't need to legalize it, but we need to be very careful on how we legalize it. Mm-hmm. And or de- again, it comes to the descheduling yeah. or re- rescheduling or descheduling because that's sort of the double-edged sword there. Like, well, yes, it's ridiculous that it lives in Schedule One. Um, when you start to deschedule it um, or reschedule it, then you open up access for you know these patents and things like you know these big companies with huge coffers to mm-hmm. really dominate and monopolize the market for this and you know and then to have the only available uh form of it be synthetic you know and um and to erode what the you know really community-based uh you know origins of of the cannabis the medical cannabis industry is really at its heart a community and um and this community has fought really hard to um be able to produce it produce plant, you know, truly plant-based alternative medicines. And when you start taking the plant away and you start just synthesizing it, um, I think we're going to lose a lot of the, um, you know, potential and the efficacy and the sort of broad, as Jessica was talking about, how it, it sort of seems almost like this panacea of like, how could it literally help all of these different you know conditions or ailments like that that doesn't seem possible but in fact it is you know and not just from anecdotal like everyone has like the aunt who went through chemo and like Mm -hmm. this helped like it's not just anecdotal peer-reviewed research yeah and hey oprah even put in her magazine so like (laughs) i mean do we need to say anything after this queen o says it (laughs) it's all good And I definitely hear you. And that's something that has to be looked at. Like, just like everyone's like, yes, let's just legalize this. And no one looked at what some of the consequences were going to be. But one of the things that is happening is that, you know, if you're looking at the people who are helped by this, a lot of us are people who can't work. Mm-hmm. Um, Elder Stainless, <laughs> if you really want me to dislocate in front of all the people, that, that can be a fun show. But it's just not possible, especially with the pots, you know, like the mm-hmm. Victorian painting disease without the corset is um, not fun. And you have people with PTSD, you have people coming back or people dealing with other things than war um, that have emotional disturbance issues and they're not able to earn a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. if this isn't considered medicine by the big businesses, the entire responsibility of economics is on the person who is getting maybe disability. And may I just tell you all, disability does not cover any real amount and mm-hmm. um, I'm so incredibly privileged and lucky I have a husband who makes money mm-hmm. um, I would never be able to even rent a room and feed my children on what I get from disability so I certainly cannot even afford my own medicine so if I can't do that being privileged and lucky I can't imagine how people who are really needing this as medicine 
are able right. to afford this. Do you know of any um, any groups or any advocacy groups that are helping, like, at least build, like, pot scholarships? For, like, <laughs> well, I mean, one of the really unfortunate things, I would say, is that um, the 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 movement turned industry that cannabis is has honestly really altered the amount of outreach and support I would say that's given to to different communities that you know when I first started in cannabis it was incredibly common for the dispensaries that existed here in California to donate money and donate medications to hospice care mm-hmm. um, to provide low-cost medications uh, for low-income patients to sort of build within their financial structure, Mm -hmm. taking care of people and patients that otherwise might not be able to get access. And that um, seems to really be quite going away. Mm -hmm. And it's disturbing to see that as the money comes in more, it really doesn't translate out to patients getting better access um, and lower cost medications. And I think that's kind of the double-edged sword also of, of the various policy places that we're in, which is that okay, if, if it becomes, you know, easier to patent constituents of this plant and if, you know, large corporate entities, be it pharmaceutical or cannabis entities, have greater control over uh, production of the plant, then we're taking away the opportunity that's the most impressive besides its therapeutic properties is that we can actually grow this. That's, mm-hmm. that's so integral to why it's so incredibly helpful is it's not just, you know, miraculous across all these medical fronts. It's something you can actually grow on your own. And I think that's really part and parcel to why we're, why sort of in a larger sense, we're so disgruntled by it, right? We don't want you to have access to grow your own medications. There's no economic stake in that. Mm -hmm. And we're a capitalist country and we are built upon the idea that there has to be an economic stake for something to sort of advance itself and I think or that's, even to have access I mean you're not even talking about advancing you're talking about complete denial of that medication for people who need it who can't afford it I mean, yeah that's that's pretty intense yeah mm-hmm. and I mean it, it could be it could be as simple as with very little effort you're able to grow all the medication that you yourself need for the course of a year and, mm-hmm. and just have it be that and have uh, relatively you know, low cost testing so that you can know mm-hmm. what you're dealing with and perhaps supplemented testing from larger entities that provide you know, a thousand patients per year with their free testing so they can grow their own. Things mm-hmm. like you know, corporate and social responsibility built into the process so that everyone is taken care of and we're just not going that direction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's what just, does you know, this industry need to go in a direction that maintains protection for the people who need the medication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a really, it, it is a tough question. And, you know, I, again, it is sort of a, a company to company basis. I know that for us, we've always provided either free or low cost testing um, to patients that bring in their own medicine. And it is something that we still continue to do. Actually, it's in, in statute in the California law. There is a, um, 
there is a way for for patients to bring in their own medicine. And actually, um, there's uh, some moves being made right now to open that up to just any consumer in general, because right now it actually says, you know, specifically a medical patient or their primary caregiver can come to a laboratory and test, you know, their homegrown or, or something that they've purchased that maybe they want to check out. Um, and so so that's that's good and all. But, um, you know, uh, that, that isn't necessarily mandated. I don't know if other labs handle that the same way. It's sort of always our, um, you know, patients are the reason we got in this, that our co-founders started the company and that we're all doing this and, and safety and public health and all that good stuff. So, um, we're committed to that on a broader basis. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. Um, I know that like the city of Berkeley, for instance, requires that each dispensary allot a certain percentage of their, um, you know, medicine to low income patients. Now, I don't know how that's changing now with adult use or if that's still a requirement or how they're handling that. Um, but we have seen those programs, but, um, you know, as as regulations have come to be this year in 2018, uh, the the taxes, the excise taxes, uh-huh. and and local taxes are just are just absolutely uh, putting a huge amount of sticker shock on this industry. And I think it's it's not going to be long before you know the move to the black market is even bigger than it was before. Um, because, uh, you know, we have individual cities taxing cannabis businesses at 10 to 15 to 20 even percent of their gross receipts. So especially for a business, so that's before gross receipts for anyone that doesn't know, you know, basic tax code here is like, that's before any overhead or any expenses that the company incurs. So, and especially when you're a company that cannot, uh, write off normal business expenses because you're a cannabis company and that would be a violation of the federal tax code because you're essentially considered a drug dealer. Um, if you can't write off any expenses and you're paying gross receipts tax and then there's a 15% state excise tax and, um, you know, it, and then there's a harvest tax on the cultivated product, I mean, it's it's becoming so astronomically expensive expensive that you saw these dispensaries on January first with lines around the door, right? Yeah. You know, oh, woo, recreational, you know, adult use is here. Um, but I've you know talked to these dispensary owners and and yeah, there there is a higher volume of people, but the sales per consumer is much lower because you can't afford the same the the, the um, equivalent amount of, of medicine or, or recreational product, depending on what you, you know, personally use it for, um, they can't uh, purchase that same equivalent amount because the taxes essentially almost like in some cases double the cost of the product. Yeah. You're that's what I was looking at for my product was that it, it would have been close to $800 a month is what we were looking at for, to continue at the, the doses that I needed to, to lower my um, pain medications. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a like if you if you do go through the process to become a registered patient with the state, and this is beyond just getting your doctor's yep. recommendation. Like people sort of have been operating right now. This is requiring that you go. Is it to the Department of Public Health? Yeah, I think, I think so. That yeah. you basically register as like a real me- medical marijuana patient, and then you're excluded from. 
the, some amount some, of like taxes. Maybe just the excise the tax. The excise tax, like the 15%. I think just the 15%. So, you know, I mean, that's a it's little bit. worth it, but yeah. wow. I Especially mean. if you're going to be, if, 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 if like a person like you that requires, you know, two, three, four, five hundred dollars a month worth, worth of this product, it might, might be worth it to go through that kind of procedure and that red tape to get that. Um, and, you know, may save you a few hundred dollars over the course of the year. But I mean, that's, that's a minimal help. You know, it's, 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 you know, we're not talking about anything super major there. It's it's a little drop in the bucket, but we're talking about a time where, and I've done episodes on this, so I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to swear and go into an epileptic fit, but we've been talking about the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. and, um, this has been a big issue in the United States and I have my own personal feelings about it, but I will try to keep them under wraps. Um, but the fact is, is that in states that allowed medical marijuana, the opioid deaths dropped significantly. Mm-hmm. 30%, if I remember my numbers correctly, which I'm hoping I'm right. Um, but if you're looking at as a patient, and if you are a patient of chronic pain, you most likely are not making a full salary. Mm-hmm. And your medical marijuana is not insurance. Right. You do yeah. not get covered. to yep. cover this. This is all out of your pocket. Right. So you're looking at someone who already has a decreased income. And if your Vicodin is $5 a month, and I would love to discuss someday about how Vicodin does not belong anywhere near this discussion of opioids, but yeah. fine. Um, your Vicodin and your Oxy and your fentanyl is $5 to $30. And mm-hmm. your medical marijuana is close to $800, which for a lot of people is about half of their disability check. Mm-hmm. This seems very counterintuitive if we're really trying to save lives. I mean, right. if Jeff Sessions <laughs> um, really wants to make a dent in this opiate crisis, if Fox News would like to actually discuss how to stop people on fentanyl from dying, mm-hmm. this does seem <laughs> like a, it, it definitely has a place at the table for mm-hmm. this chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's see, I did well. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. There's very little swearing. My teeth yeah. are still together. I'm doing around the stumps. I'm doing great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, this is completely counterintuitive to be in a time and place where more people are dying as a result of pharmaceuticals that they've been prescribed and and perhaps or moved into other categories of consumption related mm-hmm. to those pharmaceuticals. And then simultaneously have awareness that we have a really wonderful analgesic that can be completely safe to your system, that ultimately should be cheaper and easier Mm -hmm. for you to engage with and and have, and that we're actually moving away from that concept in this this time. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I'll soapbox it. It's absolutely (laughs) unacceptable. Yeah. And it sort of, to me, it lifts the veil of what do our policymakers really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, I think what that... Oh, a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much money did they take from the the lobbyists uh, yeah, let's just absolutely. Right, benefits right. from this it's absolutely. not us and that's I mean it, I think it even brings into question larger components of like what are in, in medicine and health and wellness overall what are our goals actually versus mm-hmm. what are what's presented to be mm-hmm. the case and I think that you know, I, it's not, to, to, I'm not in any way attempting to lambaste the entire kind of Western medicine reality, quite the opposite. I think a lot of physicians and nurses feel these same frustrations, but at the end of the day, a lot of the goals involved are not about benefiting patients and are not mm-hmm. about health and wellness. They're about keeping people in the same cycle 
and keeping profits going towards various entities that, that value that, you know? And I, it's disturbing to watch. I think that if we're going to verbalize this idea that we care so much about life, mm-hmm. any way you cut it, <laughs> that we should seriously look at this yeah. and say, what are our actual goals and what, what makes sense? And we're, we're just not in that place right now. That's... Yeah. You know, it's not what we're doing. No. no, no <laughs> um, but I mean, people can, to some extent, make movements in this. You mm-hmm. know, as, as I agree with you, the cost comparisons between having pharmaceuticals that are in fact covered and having cannabis, which is outside that coverage, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if we start working together more, I think there's an opportunity for people to have some really individualized impacts. Like, you know, some, somebody, you know, is willing to grow. Somebody, you know, is willing to grow. Yeah, right. And if, if we start creating networks mm-hmm. surrounding the idea of people growing their own medications and other people being able to access that, I think that's really significant. What, frankly, whether that's black market or not, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. you know, if you're in a desperate position, you don't care. Yeah. about that. And that's understandable. And as long as you can get the materials tested, right. then you're good to go either yeah. way. And yes, you're, you're facing a risk. You're facing a risk taking pharmaceuticals that are covered that might be impacting your health. You know, like these are all, yeah. this is all a series of risk assessment. Right. So within that framework, um, you know, I would love to see people consider even more growing their own medications mm-hmm. so that we can, we can have some improvement, you know? Yeah. Um, and even things like, like you said, the tinctures are your preferred mode of consumption and, and making, you know, if you had a a cannabis plant outside one day, maybe. The vapors. I know, right? <laughs> My um, chickens will be overjoyed. They'd yeah. be so happy. <laughs> They'd be like, free range, mom. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and then not to mention your 17-year-old and how he, you know, he might feel about that. Or, you know, again, like you said, you're a mom. You There's there's a risk that you feel by being associated with that. And well, I used to, I used to be really like, even when I started, I was like, Oh, I don't want to like in my business. So it's like, I ran a photography business and it was like babies and bellies and yeah. you know, like, and, and some boudoir, but it was really like, you had to have a certain persona to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, gain trust easily. And this, it was something I was really quiet about until I saw the benefit. And then I was like, Fuck that. Yeah, um, yeah. People need to know. Soapbox right. on it screaming. I'm good at that. I'm good at yelling. Yeah. Um, but you also were talking about me being a mom, and I did fear that a bit. And yeah, I did definitely. It's understandable. It I get it. You know, it's not. You and know. how do you talk to your teenager about drugs when it's like, and in my medicine cabinet, and how we did that? Because I want to give people a script, because I cannot be the only mother with a teenager who's like, you know what? I know I use this for medicine, but I'm not terribly comfortable with you trying this right now. And Mm -hmm. the reason I'm not comfortable with it is entirely legal. If he gets caught with marijuana, there's a legal issue. He could go to jail. He could get arrested. There is a level of shit I do not want him to deal with or me or us Mm -hmm. as a family or the amount of cost we would have to put into that. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that we do the script. That's how we've talked to him about it is like, this is a legal issue for you right now. Mm -hmm. No. (laughs) Yeah. When you're 18, (laughs) 
your choice. Yeah, right. And I mean, it's totally understandable. I get, you know, I understand why people um, are potentially unwilling to to give it a try or just just in their personal risk assessment of it, just don't feel like it suits their uh, risk personality, <laughs> if you will. Talking about teenagers, the other risk is I'm getting everything from a dispensary. It's been tested by your company. Yeah, I know that. Right, right. And you're like, I know that this is exactly what is in it. Right. If a kid is in high school and someone's like, hey, you don't know what's in that until no. it's too late. Right. I mean, until it's been ingested or smoked or whatever, they don't understand what well, teenagers risk. Right, right. <laughs> um, excuse me, I bite the rest of my fingernails off. Yeah. But that is one of the big fears, and that's another thing we've absolutely discussed with, with the family. We're hippies and we're very open, but that is absolutely how we've talked about yeah, no, knowing what's in it, knowing knowing what it is, mm. and yeah, you don't get that level of... Because being a parent of teenagers isn't terrifying enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, going back to it, if, if for people that are willing to take that risk or, you know, grow their own or have it their own personal supply, there's a lot of resources online for, you know, how to create your own tinctures. Mm-hmm. It's really not a difficult pr- pr- procedure, you know, and you can uh, do, you know, like a, a fat-based tincture, like a MCT oils, what Jessica's company used, um, or or um, you know some high like an ethanol tincture is actually really the most efficient mode of, of um, extraction is is alcohol followed by fat by a fat, um, but you know it's as simple as like soaking flour in alcohol for. A week or two, you know, not, maybe not even that long, and but we and then you strain it out. Yeah, yeah. Show me your favorite, like, right? <laughs> you know, moment right? And there's DIY, and we'll we'll put it up on the blog. Yeah, and, yeah. There's, I mean, there's there's resources out there. Again, like it's the internet, so there's some crazy things out there, and um, you know, procedures and ingredients that. I personally wouldn't recommend using, but, um, but there's, there is ways, especially if you don't want to smoke it, which is totally understandable. Um, there are, there are ways to, you know, consume this, this medicine, um, in a, in a way that is, is right for you, you know? And, um, yeah, like Jessica said, there's, you know, there's people out there growing it for personal use or that would be happy to provide it to a friend, you know, that we needs need to it. build like a social media network. For yeah. this. We need to like how they have for like fruit in neighborhoods where like, yeah, oh, yeah. We absolutely. Need this for, so anyone who's good at coding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Jessica, you actually run this as a business. So what happened that it doesn't work for you as a business anymore? Do you want to, uh, I mean, really it's no, as it's, I ask it's this pretty, on the air, yeah. 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 <laughs> You don't feel comfortable. It's pretty, uh, it's a pretty short and simple story, which is just simply that the fires that occurred in Northern California, Mm -hmm. um, really, really heavily impacted the company. And we had radically increased production for Mm -hmm. the incoming year, uh, because, because regulation was going in and we were definitely very well situated to be able to handle that. Um, so we radically increased production and then fires hit Northern California and uh, wiped us clean of both incoming crop mm-hmm. and the genetics involved in this particular mm-hmm. uh, medication. So that was kind of a big deal in the sense that, uh, you know, it, it took almost 10 years for someone to cultivate and breed 
the right varietal, mm-hmm. varietal for what I was looking for, yeah. which is not only high CBD, um, but also high CBG and high in beta caryophylline. So different parts of the plant that have therapeutic value. And it took a lot of work to get this right plant out of it. Um, and we lost the genetics as well as the mm. a large amount of cost of crop. Um, but I mean, that almost kind of segues it into another piece that is that is a part of our you know landscape in terms of cannabis is that you know we're not a, not only can we not have a bank account uh, right. we're not allowed to have insurance um, yeah. this is not covered by insurance, insurance. Yeah. yeah this is not covered because these are federally legal plants and that is such <laughs> such a frustrating piece of this for me is that you know we're operating in every uh, fashion in the ways that we are supposed to be. Uh, we're paying more taxes than many companies do, mm-hmm. uh, and yet we don't have any of the same um, protections for our activities, for our banking, mm-hmm. for the insurance, for the growth of the materials, et cetera. And what that means is that you know, for all the people that we were doing good for and being able to benefit their health, and keeping our prices, I would say, very low in terms of like market standards, we're still tapped out at the end of just one one fire, basically. Um, and I think that regardless of my company specifically, the idea of mm-hmm. how that could occur is, mm-hmm. is, is wrong, you know, that we should be able to have insurance. We should be able to have normal business banking activities. These things are all a threat to folks that go into these activities with the, in my case, the primary goal being making sure to benefit patients. And mm-hmm. would you like to remind everyone how many people died from cannabis use versus, yeah. like, we don't do the mm-hmm. versus, how many people died from, from cannabis? That'd be zero. Yeah. Yep. That. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think it's an important number just to throw out there. Yeah. Um, as we're talking about how many thousands of people a day are dying from fentanyl. Yeah. Or how many hundreds of people are dying a day from fentanyl. And over the entire history of humanity, which just goes all the way, and any of you um, wonderful members of my family who are very on the far right and Christian, um, this goes all the way back, like, all the way back. This yeah. is this is in, like, prehistory. Like, this has been a plant that has been discovered and rediscovered and lost and rediscovered over and over again for its benefits. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, in its natural state, yeah. very good and not lethal. Well, that's yeah. what I always think about when, when you were discussing tincture making, Emily, is that I, it's it's incredibly old yeah. activities in mm-hmm. terms of tincture making of cannabis. Yeah. And, and it's been present throughout human history all over the globe. And even up until the 1920s and 30s in the United States, you can go and Google and see right. old uh, tincture bottles. Just how racist it was on why this became illegal in the 20s and 30s. Right. Yeah. If you want to look at why this became Schedule One, this was race. It was absolutely yeah. yeah. And that's a fun one, actually. Adam ruins everything. Had like the best. I love him, by the way. Like obsessed, and he had the best episode on this. Awesome. So I'll link that in the show notes too, because yeah. that was a really good breakdown on how this happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of industries. It's, you know, our uh, cotton timber, uh, the later to be existent pharmaceutical industry and straight up racism, all of this got, Mm -hmm. you know, tied into alcohol and tobacco. Absolutely. Very hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet, you know, you can go back and see images of tincture containers from literally the twenties. Yeah where people would walk into (laughs) local pharmacists and get access. Wow. A huge thank you to my guests, Jessica and Emily, for coming out here and talking all about medical marijuana. 
If you could just take a minute and share this podcast with someone you think would like to or you think should know more about this topic, this is a great one to share. Um, Thank you so much for listening this week. I really appreciate it. And it's wonderful to see um, all the people who who are listening and subscribing. Thank you. We're a baby podcast. It's you guys sharing us and subscribing. That means everything. Um, In that vein, please hit subscribe. Say very nice things about us on iTunes and tune in next Monday. And until then, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.